Welcome to Who's in STEM. I'm Ken Ono, your host and the STEM advisor to the provost and the Marvin Rosenblum Professor of Mathematics at the University of Virginia. On Who's in STEM, our goal is to evoke flights of imagination and wonder by showcasing the cornucopia of all that is STEM at UVA. The marvelous world of UVA science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. As a pure mathematician, I spend my days thinking about abstract gadgets, abelian varieties, infinite dimensional graded moonshine modules, harmonic MOS forms. I, like most mathematicians, ponder difficult problems simply because we find them interesting in their own right. We hold out hope, or at least we say we hold out hope, that our theorems will one day be applied to the real world. And you know what? It actually happens, and often in an unexpected way, which is one reason why fundamental research is so important. A good example is the math underlying Google, the behemoth of internet search engines. It turns out that the math, linear algebra, is centuries old, but when done the right and efficient way, with the help of computer algorithms, is magic. Remember this the next time you tell your friend to simply Google it. Today's guests, Mark Breton and Boris Kovachev of the Center for Diabetes Technology and the UVA School of Medicine, have put math, yes, pure math, to extraordinary use. They've developed and fine-tuned over two decades an artificial pancreas, complete with a glucose monitoring system, and today, their system has improved the lives of over half a million diabetics. But first, let's celebrate who's making discoveries. UVA health neuroscientist and graduate student Andrea Merchak, working in Alban Gaultier's lab, has discovered a potential way to disrupt the chronic inflammation responsible for multiple sclerosis by understanding and researching immunity and the microbiome. This novel approach might lay an important foundation for future research. And Patrick Hopkins, in his UVA engineering lab, they've successfully finished a surprising project for the U.S. Department of Energy. Get this, they use squid protein to make thermal batteries. It turns out that squid protein absorbs heat when dry and releases heat when wet as it evaporates and cools. Can squid offer a new green energy source? Stay tuned. And finally, featured on New Eye on the Universe, which is the latest episode of NOVA, this episode features UVA astronomer Aaron Evans and he explores the Webb Telescope's capabilities and shares stunning photographs of his research on galaxies. These findings offer a preview of when our Milky Way galaxy and the nearby Andromeda galaxy collide five billion years from now. And that's Who's Making Discoveries. Today, we're talking about the ways in which engineering and mathematics leads to life-altering technology. Mark Breton, Associate Director of the Center for Diabetes Technology, he comes from engineering. Boris Kovachev, the director of this center, was trained in probability and statistics, something much closer to my heart. 
when Professor Breton joined Professor Kovachev's lab as a postdoc many years ago, the two started a partnership that has managed to describe, simulate, and now control the metabolic systems of diabetic patients. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Ken. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Ken. We're also joined today by a surprise guest, Ben Mata, a third-year UVA engineering student. Ben has participated in this team's clinical trials since he was just about 12 years old. Ben, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So, Ben, what was it like coping with diabetes before you entered the clinical trials? When my parents think about this time in my life, they uh, recall waking up in the middle of the night, sometimes multiple times, to check my blood sugar and make sure my blood sugar wasn't too low or too high. When I recall starting out with diabetes, I think about taking shots of insulin in restaurants and in schools and everywhere else I went. And it was painful and awkward having to manage diabetes amidst the normal tasks of life. And this management process of diabetes is very intensive. It's time intensive, it's mentally intensive, and it can really take a toll on a person. I bet. So Ben, you've seen the artificial pancreas evolve in stages, improved over time. First, as a Google Nexus, if those listening remember what that was, to today's current market-ready version. What was it like seeing the technology evolve, and how did the changes impact your life for the better? It was fascinating seeing the evolution of the technology and thinking back on it now even more so, knowing like the process that goes into engineering these products. The biggest thing that the artificial pancreas does is it takes so much strain, that mental energy, out of the equation for millions of diabetics. And it mitigates their high blood sugars and low blood sugars in a way that allows them to live their lives as they want to without having to constantly concentrate on making sure that they're going to be safe and healthy all the time. And so it has absolutely drastically impacted my life for the better in a very measurable degree. So how, how much time do you have to spend thinking about this device? Is it sort of like charging a cell phone? Yeah, I plug it in about every day, and every three days I um, change out the insulin inside, and I add in a new what's called an infusion set that injects insulin into my body, and that's about all I have to do. And then mm. when I eat, I'll give a little bit of insulin, and it'll take care of the rest. And how big is this device? It's probably about three by two inches or so. It's pretty small. Oh, it's even smaller than a cell phone. Absolutely. Yeah. Great. Professor Breton, diabetes simplified. The body doesn't make enough insulin. And when there isn't enough insulin, too much sugar stays in the bloodstream. I think we all know someone afflicted with diabetes. And we all fear that over time, our afflicted friends and family will develop serious health problems. Think heart disease, blindness, kidney disease. So tell us, how does your artificial pancreas and glucose monitoring system, how do they work? So like Ben just described to us, right, we have a, an insulin pump, that two by four inch little device that's usually worn on the belt. And that device is going to inject insulin every five minutes. The big difference between a regular pump and an artificial pancreas is that we're going to change the amount of insulin that it injects and calculate that every five minutes. And the amount of insulin we're going to be injected is computed to be just what the patient need right at that time. So for that to happen, we use the continuous glucose monitors that is connected to that little insulin pump. So a, glucose, a continuous glucose monitor is a little piece of equipment that sits on the skin, usually for about 10 days to two weeks. It's 
probably about a half an inch long, maybe a little more. It's fairly small now. It has a little needle that just goes under the skin and samples under the skin every 30 seconds or so and give a value every five minutes. And that value and all the insulin records that we have in the pump, we use to inform a mathematical model. And that mathematical model is going to be able to predict where the blood sugar is going to go over the next 30 or 60 minutes and inform the algorithm on the insulin dose that it needs to take. So the, the first thing that we did with Boris after we sort of figured out that model, was to take care of the hypoglycemia. We were just citing the fact that if you don't have enough insulin, glucose goes up. But the first acute danger that we saw was if you have too much insulin, you're going to go low. And these symptoms are immediate and potentially very dangerous. So that's the very first thing that we did. We actually took some of Boris's theoretical development around blood sugar, and we put that into what we call the safety system, something that avoids the hypoglycemia. And once we had that foundation well set, we started focusing on how do we mitigate high blood sugar, hyperglycemia. And we started adding modules to the system for a few years until we got it just right. It took us about eight years to put it together. I see. And so there's the math, there's the engineering, and the trial and error that Ben described. It's fascinating. So, Professor Kovacev and Breton, I understand that neither of you originally expected to work in the medical field. And I think our listeners will want to know, tell us about your unorthodox paths to your research, Professor Kovacev. Well, ever since high school, when I was on the national team of the International Math Olympics, I knew that I would be a researcher. I just didn't know which kind of researcher. So I did some math, graduated in probability and statistics, like you can, did some differentiable manifolds in statistical space, and then come to UVA to do a postdoc in endocrinology. And that changed the picture dramatically. I had personal reasons to do that. My father had diabetes, but that changed the picture dramatically because I learned that the human endocrine system is describable by equations. And these equations represented fairly accurately. And, so and how many variables? How many uh, About 40 different mm-hmm. parameters and about 25 different equations, but it's describable. And that's what got me into this mixed field between engineering, math, and medicine. Good. Sounds very complicated. Professor Breton, your path. There are similarities and, of course, some differences. So like Boris, very early on, I was attracted to academic research. But unlike Boris, relatively quickly, I figured that theoretical math was not going to be fitted for me. And I decided that I would move towards more applied mathematics and engineering. And so I got my master in automatic control engineering in France and decided I wanted to do a PhD and continue academic studies. At the time, most of what I was doing could be applied to satellite control or shooting uh, rockets somewhere and controlling (laughs) them. And that wasn't particularly interesting to me. So I got the chance of getting a PhD at UVA with uh, Donald Brown, then chair of the system engineering department, and got to apply what I knew to a very different field. And I got to touch on engineering and medicine and got hooked and really valued the application to health much more than rocket control. Okay. Well, you know, what I love about your work is that 
It embodies everything that we seek in interdisciplinary science. And in fact, neither of you work in fields that you would have predicted when you first set out to do your research. That's fascinating. So I want to turn back to the math. So Professor Kovacev, how do you actually do the mathematics and apply the algorithms in your daily research? So math helps endocrinology in this particular case at at least three levels. First, to understand better the metabolic system in diabetes in a human, to model it, to know how the fluxes and the juices are flowing in there. When we eat something, what is happening? When we exercise, what is happening? How to quantify that? How to describe this in equations? So that's the modeling part. And then when we cover the modeling part and understand the system better, the next step is to simulate it, to run a computer simulation of this system and play what-if scenarios. And we have the largest ever done computer simulator of the human metabolic system right here in UVA, which basically opens the field for design of the third part, which is you know how to model it, you know how to simulate it, now let's learn how to control that system externally. And to develop a control algorithm is a piece of cake when we have this huge simulator with thousands of simulated individuals in there to play with. So that's about it. Modeling, simulation, and control. These are the three key elements that Matt brings into this field Great. of diabetes. Right. So tell us about the Center for Diabetes Technology. That's a huge enterprise. Where is it? How many members of your staff do you have? Tell us about it. As many things, the center started small uh, with just me <laughs> originally. <laughs> and it was not a center. It was a group. And then uh, there were a few people coming, including Mark. And the center really took off when we started with the artificial pancreas project, when we started with computer simulation and when we started with clinical trials of our technology. It is located at the Fontaine Research Park. Currently, there are approximately 60 people working in that center, and they are from various backgrounds. There are engineers, there are mathematicians, there are clinicians, there are physicians, there are nurses, there are project coordinators. So we are known for both theoretical development, doing stuff like serious math, and then translating this into clinical practice. And when a postdoc comes to our center, they know that within a year or two, they will have to run their own clinical trial. So you cannot really get more translational than that. Glad to hear that all of that is here at UVA. Professor Breton, you recently won the 2023 UVA Innovator of the Year Award. What does that mean to you? Well, it was quite amazing. You don't always get nods, right? As an academic researcher, you don't get validated very often. You don't get recognized very often. And so when it happens, obviously, it's very meaningful. So they're not stopping you on the street asking for autographs? Not, not, not quite yet. <laughs> but we'll, we'll, we'll see if that happens one day. Well, and to do that a few years after Boris was quite meaningful. Oh, as yeah. Well. You're right. So, Professor Kovacev, you yourself won the UVA Innovator Award in 2011. What's it like to be on the other side and see a former mentee and now colleague receive the same honor? I was thrilled. We should do that more often. I mean, really. <laughs> it's it's uh, very rewarding. It also reminds me that research never ends and it will continue to grow. 
and new things will be invented and brought into the clinical practice to make the health of people better. Great. So turning back to the center, are there opportunities for undergraduates to participate in in research? Always. Always. Uh, We have many open positions for student workers, for graduate students. We are always looking for qualified postdoctoral fellows. And we're also trying to grow our faculty and basically the size of the center. We always have more ideas and more projects than we have people to run. We've been growing all the time for the last 10 years, right, Boris? 13 years from the beginning of the center. And we still haven't found enough people to do everything we want to do. That's great. That's great. Professor Breton, I understand that the commercialization of your product would not have been possible without the UVA Licensing and Ventures Group. How did this group assist you? So when I joined Boris's research, when he was a center of one, one thing that was clear is that work that we were doing in the lab could be meaningful to companies and clinicians out there. And so we were very attentive to disclose the inventions that were being generated in the center. And then the UVA Patent Foundation, now the UVA Licensing and Venture Group, were of course critical to be able to do that. And in my mind, that's the only reason that we were able to have an impact on the real world outside of academics. Because through these disclosures and then eventually patents, I'm named on 27, Boris, I think you named on over 50, we were able to license these technologies to for-profit companies. And it's these companies that really managed to create the device that Ben is benefiting from now. Oh, that's, that's really great. That's really great. I want to continue on this sort of theme, the various mechanisms that can assist research, right? There's getting the money to do the research, then there's facilitating the research itself, and then guaranteeing that uh, research has impact. All of these things matter to us. So I want to circle back to the first item I mentioned, getting the money to do the research. So the Manning family recently made a $100 million gift to establish the Institute for Biotechnology, one of the largest gifts ever made to UVA. And I understand, Dr. Kovachev, that their earlier gift supported your own work, offering an extraordinary and personal example of the importance of STEM philanthropy. Tell us about how important their gift was in getting you started in your work. First, I have to acknowledge and thank you, Paul and Diane Manning, about their gift for Biotechnology Institute. This is an extraordinary opportunity. I have been introduced to Mr. Manning 15 years ago, and uh, he began with his support of our research prior to any other funding agency. When the so-called artificial pancreas became a possibility, not a reality, but a possibility. So philanthropy is extremely important. It comes into place earlier than standard conventional foundations and federal funding, which usually require some background data and not just an idea. So we started with philanthropy. We started with the so-called DAS, the Diabetes Assistant. This is the Google phone that you mentioned in the beginning. We started moving on that with um, support from the Manning family and also from the Bounting Foundation, which is Fred and Susan Russell 
of Richmond. And that got the ball moving, data was collected, prototypes were created, and then from there, there is JDRF funding, and then there is NH support, and all of that grew exponentially to end up with the product that we're describing now. But the initial seed funding from the family was so critical. It was right? absolutely critical to get this started. If I can add, I mean, we've had the luck of philanthropy at every critical stage in our development. And Boris cited right these early funding and then also some gap funding in the middle when agencies were not capable of funding some technology. We also got philanthropy when it was time to bring the technology outside of the university. And so when we created the startup Type Zero that was then able to license and get the product out, the Edmonds family and the Mead families were also critical in addition to the Russells and the Mannings. And so there are many people around the community that made this possible. If the Manning family is listening, we are all very grateful for your support. And thanks to all of the supporters of the Diabetes Technology Institute and UVA STEM research overall. So I'd like to thank Professor Breton and Professor Kovacev for being here today. They are clearly shining examples of President Ryan's vision for UVA to be great and good in all that we do. Thank you both for making the world a better place. And thank you, Ben, for sharing your personal experiences and the best of luck for, for your studies in engineering. I'm Ken Ono, STEM advisor to the provost and the Marvin Rosenblum Professor of Mathematics, and you've been listening to Who's in STEM. Who's in STEM is a production of WTJU 91.1 FM and the Office of the Provost at the University of Virginia. Who's in STEM is produced by Katherine Kossaboom, Rhea Verma, Mary Garner-McGee, and Katherine Hansen. Our music is composed and performed by Robert Schneider and John Ferguson of Apples and Stereo. Listen and subscribe to Who's in STEM on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back soon with another conversation about scientific and technological innovation at the university.